Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Chapter 6 of King and Baronage, A.D. 1135 to 1327 by William Holden Hutton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The Reign of King Edward I, 1272 to 1307. Edward I was crowned with his wife Eleanor on August 19, 1274. He was the first king whose succession had been recognized without question from the moment of his father's death as due to his hereditary right. He was better known and perhaps better loved than the heir of any other king had been. Cruel and hasty he had seemed in his youth when the barons' war began, but men soon learned to know him as a true and honorable knight who kept his word and did justice, who was stern with wrongdoers, but willing always to do right to the people in the state. Edward had had, too, the training of a great king. He had fought within and without the land, in Wales, in France, in Palestine. He had seen men in cities, he knew the foreign sovereigns, and he knew also the great barons and the great clerks and lawyers of his own land. He was less of a stranger than any of the kings who had gone before him since the conquest. He was born in Westminster, and he lived the greater part of his life, which was a long one for those times, among his English people. When he came back to England to take into his own hands the government of his people, he began his rule with two aims which he kept ever before his eyes. The first was to bring the whole island, if it might be under one sway, if not to be the only king of it himself, yet to make his power as overlord a real one, to be, as the old English kings had been called, a true emperor of Britain. His second aim was to give his people a greater share than they had yet had in the government of the land. The lessons of the last thirty years had not been learnt in vain. He determined to make the courts free to every subject of the realm, and the council a parliament of all sorts and conditions of men. For England, his motto was, what touches all should be approved by all. Quod omnes tangit, ab omnibus approbetur. For himself it was keep troth, pactum serva. 
it was these aims and his lifelong endeavours to carry them out in this spirit that made edward i the greatest of our kings in himself he was not only great he was good he was of frugal simple tastes chaste and truly religious he was above all things a warrior and a sportsman he loved the battle and he loved the chase but he was by no means deficient in book-learning like all great kings he learned to speak the tongues of the men with whom he had to deal he could talk english latin french and perhaps also spanish he followed his father in patronizing art he was himself a lawyer as well as a statesman the defects of his character were his impetuosity and his violence he was rash passionate vindictive and yet he always believed himself to be following the right he could even descend to a trick and yet he was always an honest man stories are told of him which explain both the terror and the love which he inspired he was awful in his wrath once when he was raiding a deputation of clergy the dean of st paul's fell dead before him from sheer fright he was hasty in his anger he swam a stream and scaled a rock to punish a careless servant and he beat a clumsy squire with his own hands and then made him a present to atone for his violence he was a good hearty companion to poor and rich and loved his jest with the merriest of them he was a devoted husband and a loving father and with all this he was one of the greatest men in an age of great men as statesman lawyer warrior he could compare with the mighty monarchs who ruled abroad in his day and he left as few other kings have done an ineffaceable mark on the history of his own land edward after his coronation turned at once to the work of government robert burnell who had long been his close friend and was a great lawyer and an able statesman he made his chancellor and soon afterwards bishop of bath and wells his treasurer was john kirby bishop of ely he learnt much from francesco accursi a legist from bologna many other great lawyers surrounded him and great barons and bishops were among his ministers antony beck bishop of durham was a fit successor to such men as hugh de puisset he was a great bishop after the fashion of those days but he was also a soldier and a politician in his hands the northern shires over which he watched from his prince bishopric were safe henry de lacy earl of lincoln was truest among the great lay men and served his master steadfastly in war and peace besides the earl of lincoln there were other great earls who stood round the king gilbert de clare earl of gloucester had won his spurs in the barons war he married a cousin of the king and when she died the king gave him his own daughter joan who had been born at acre during the crusade the king's brother edmund who had never won the sicilian crown was earl of lancaster leicester and derby humphrey de boone earl of hereford and roger bygod earl of norfolk were to live to lead the opposition to the king at the great crisis of his reign edmund earl of cornwall was the king's cousin and stood by him closely as long as he lived edward used the great earls as counsellors and generals but he was careful to guard against their political influence becoming dangerous to himself he strove where he could to attach the earls to himself by marriage alliances or on failure of heirs to absorb their heritages into the crown lands 
so it fell out that under his son their number was much diminished and men said that bannockburn was lost because there were but five or six earls to bring help to the king edward's first work was in wales he knew of old how the welsh princes fought with the lord's marchers and how every trouble in england was only too faithfully reflected on the borders Clewellyn, prince of north wales was not long in awakening the new king's wrath he was called on to do homage he refused in twelve seventy three twelve seventy four twelve seventy five he would not come in twelve seventy six and twelve seventy seven edward made war upon him and Clewellyn was driven into the fastnesses of snowdon at length he submitted and was allowed to marry eleanor de montfort earl simon's daughter and the king's cousin but as a punishment the land between the upper dee and the conway was shorn from his principality the peace was not for long in twelve eighty two war broke out again Clewellyn was joined by his brother david who before had served with edward the king had tried to introduce english law into those parts of wales which were his and to teach the wild people through english merchants and the rule of great barons in strong castles everywhere the english were hated and it was easy to stir up a revolt south and north joining against the english king edward was prompt to avenge he gathered a large army he got the church to excommunicate Clewellyn as a traitor he brought his council to shrewsbury and gave his whole mind to the task of conquering wales he carried all before him the war was slow but the success was thorough Clewellyn refusing a pardon on condition that he would surrender his rights and receive an earldom in ireland was slain in a chance fight near bilth david who proclaimed himself prince after his brother's death was captured and was tried before parliament at shrewsbury on october third twelve eighty three he died a traitor's death from this dates the conquest of wales edward now set himself to make it firmly united to the english kingdom at Rutland in 1284 he issued the statute of wales by it the land newly annexed from Clewellyn was divided into five shires carnarvon anglesey merioneth cardigan and camarthen and everywhere courts like the english were established edward's son born at carnarvon in 1284 was made in 1301 prince of wales still however the government of the borders was left to the lord's marchers and edward did not summon welshmen to his english parliament or touch the ancient welsh law he united england and wales under one sway and he tried to benefit the principality by giving it a good government on english lines but he did no more he gave however to wales towns and castles such as Bomaris, bangor carnarvon and harlech which should make permanent the english influence and the archbishop of canterbury peckham took in hand the reformation and instruction of the welsh church thus from edward's conquest date most of the fine towns and castles and churches of wales thus ten years of the reign went by in the welsh wars and the welsh settlement then edward turned to the legal reforms for which he was so well prepared he was in some sense the first and he was certainly the greatest of the english medieval legislators 
the law before his time was largely ancient custom modified by the enactments of different kings most of which were not intended to be of permanent force edward was surrounded by trained lawyers already judges like glanville and bracton had endeavoured to compress into one book the essence of the many rules under which men lived and which the judges were to enforce under edward this work was continued britain succeeded bracton and it may be that the king himself designed to make a code however that may be he began by reforms which took the direction of a substantial addition to the law in twelve seventy five he issued the first statute of westminster which provided for the enforcement of peace and order in twelve seventy six there followed the statute of Regeman, a revision of the law of trespass in twelve seventy eight the statute of gloucester restricted the power of the barons and the jurisdiction of the local courts to carry out the provisions of this statute commissioners were sent round the country to investigate the titles by which the barons held their privileges writs were addressed to the great lords asking by what warrant quo warranto they acquired these powers it seemed to many that the king was interfering with traditional and unquestioned rights the earl of warren produced an ancient and rusty sword and said this is my title with this my ancestors under william the conqueror won their lands and with the sword i will maintain them it was a sign that edward would have to deal no less than his father with a haughty and independent baronage in twelve seventy nine came the statute of mortmain by this it was intended in the interests of the barons as well as of the king to prevent the grant of lands to churches or to clergy as such whereby the land would be released from its feudal obligations and the lords or the king be deprived of military services and many other dues all grants of land to corporations whereby the land came into the dead hand were forbidden in twelve eighty three the statute of merchants for the easier recovery of trade debts in twelve eighty four the statute of Rathlan, already mentioned did much to simplify the work of the king's judges and financiers in twelve eighty five came the second statute of westminster which covered a large range of law modifying and reforming it included the law de donis conditionalibus which safeguarded the rights of legal heirs to landed property in the same year the statute of winchester revived and reorganized the ancient military force of the land which had done such good service against king david in eleven thirty eight and william the lion in eleven seventy four it provided also for a police system by the enforcement of the duties of citizens in watch and ward in twelve ninety the third statute of westminster quia emptores prevented the lessening of a feudal lord's privileges by the granting of land from one of his tenants to a subtenant from this date all new grants became as grants from the original lords and no new manners could be created in later years there seemed little need for new laws in thirteen o five the writ of trailbaston directed the prompt and rigorous suppression of the thieves and marauders who disturbed the land in thirteen o seven the statute of carlisle forbade the collecting of money for the pope this list shows the comprehensive nature of edward's legislation but it by no means expresses the whole of his work in legal reform 
directly and indirectly by legislation by the encouragement of a scientific study of law and by the increase of litigation which was to some extent the result of his measures he did much both to systematically organize the law courts and to raise up trained bodies of lawyers men began to be advised by attorneys and represented by counsel the judges became professional men adhering to their own work and their own courts and not as under henry the second made useful wherever the king wanted them the law courts became easier of access and more rapid more scientific and more regular in their working and in the country at large order was enforced and men were able to live more securely and with a growing feeling of loyalty to the king and unity in the nation this feeling was increased by edward's great work in the development or the creation of parliament as we now know it after various preliminary efforts he issued writs in twelve ninety five for a parliament which should fully represent all the classes of the nation he did not destroy the feudal council of the king which the barons attended because they held land of the king but he took part of this council and he took also from the shire courts and the church courts and out of these he made his model parliament this contained representation of the three estates of the realm the clergy the barons and the people or commons the clergy appeared by number one all bishops and those abbots to whom the king sent special summons number two two elected representatives from each diocese and each cathedral the barons were now distinguished by edward who made a practical separation between the greater and the lesser by summoning the former by special writ and thus creating the house of lords and leaving the latter without any special political privilege thus the commons included the lesser barons or knights the freeholders the citizens and edward created the house of commons by requiring the sheriffs in each county to cause to be elected two knights from the shire and two citizens from each important town who were to come to the parliament to represent the community which elected them these three estates were not yet divided into distinct houses and the inferior clergy partly because they already met in their own convocations rarely if ever obeyed the royal summons to send representatives but a parliament was thus created which fairly represented all interests in the land and to this parliament edward gave the fullest competence in advising and in ordaining that had ever been given to any english assembly he never shook himself entirely free of the idea of kingship as involving a supreme and arbitrary power but he aimed at and on the whole he honestly carried out the realization of his maxim quod omnis tangit ab omnibus approbetur that which touches all should be approved by all how important this concession was will be seen as we consider the later history of the reign but edward had constantly to turn from home to foreign politics from his great legal and constitutional reforms to the care and extension of his interests abroad during the early years of his reign he was occupied in doing homage for his aquitanian possessions to the french king his cousin and in recognizing his rights as feudal lord in twelve seventy nine he succeeded in right of his wife to the county of ponthieu at the mouth of the somme which once again gave to england a footing in northern france the treaty of amiens 
in the same year made a satisfactory arrangement between the kings but the next ten years were years of constant political intrigue though not of actual war in 1286 edward went to france for three years he did homage to the new french king philip the fourth the fair and he busied himself in trying to make peace in europe and preparing for a crusade he set himself to develop the commerce of bordeaux and to found new towns throughout his duchy but the peace did not last long the development of the southern trade which edward had fostered led to war with the north the seamen of gascony and of normandy were constantly fighting in the english channel french ships were captured and philip required edward to give reparation the english king replied that all men wronged could get justice in the english courts and when he refused to come to paris philip declared that he had forfeited the duchy of aquitaine after negotiations which the french king used only to gain time philip by an act of shameful treachery gained possession of a number of castles and soon of the whole of gascony edward got up a great european alliance against him but the troubles in scotland and wales and the difficulties in his own land prevented his ever seriously undertaking the french war it dragged on for years with varying success and the french continually aided the scots while edward joined with the flemings against france at length a truce was made in twelve ninety nine when edward married as his second wife the french king's sister margaret peace was made may twentieth thirteen o three by which gascony was restored to the english king scotland claimed a far greater share of edward's attention than france in twelve eighty six alexander the third the last of the old line of scots kings died his heiress was margaret his granddaughter only child of his daughter margaret and eric king of norway she was summoned to scotland and it was arranged that she should marry the young edward of england but she died on her voyage and there remained no one who had clear right to the scots crown twelve ninety a great number of claimants started up and it was agreed to submit the decision to edward i as overlord the rights of england over scotland had been both indefinite and contested and their exercise had depended upon the strength of the sovereign by whom they were enjoyed but edward believed them to be genuine and fully legal and he undertook the task of adjudging the claims as a feudal duty and in simple faith three claimants were prominent henry lord hastings john balliol and robert bruce on november thirtieth twelve ninety two the crown was awarded to john balliol and he did homage to edward for the kingdom for a while the new king ruled happily as a vassal of england but the french war and edward's financial troubles led before long to far more serious disturbance edward had all along been hampered by want of money he had begun his reign with heavy debts of his father's and from his own crusade so long as there was no exceptional demand upon him he had been able to carry on the government without any excessive taxation in 1290 he had yielded to popular pressure and had banished all jews from england this was a considerable sacrifice of money to him but the measure was unwise and wrong and it seems to have been carried out in some cases with great cruelty 
a few years later the king felt the need of those from whom he could readily obtain money but he was too honourable to take a bribe as the french king did to allow the jews to return from this time troubles came thickly upon him his devoted wife eleanor of castile whom men called the peacemaker died in twelve ninety and bishop kirkby his treasurer in the same year in twelve ninety two died the great lawyer burnell in twelve ninety four a general rising took place in wales with the welsh philip of france allied himself and he also induced john balliol to join him for the king of scots had begun to chafe against his suzerain when edward began to interfere in local scottish matters by summoning scots litigants to appear before his courts at westminster it was in the midst of these troubles that edward summoned his great parliament of twelve ninety five thus asking the help and counsel of his people in his greatest stress help was not refused clergy barons knights and townsmen all granted liberal taxes ranging from an eleventh to a seventh of their goods with this he prepared to meet the threatened danger to gascony he sent a large force then he prepared to meet the scots first he sent a special summons to balliol to attend his parliament at newcastle on march first twelve ninety six with his barons when they did not come edward prepared to march against them but already a force of near forty thousand scots had burst into cumberland and was ravaging far and near the chronicle of lanercost written at the time in the invaded district says that they surpassed the cruelty of the heathen for not being able to seize upon the strong they wreaked their vengeance on the weakly the sickly and the young children of two and three years old they impaled on spears and threw into the air consecrated churches they burned and they vilely treated and slew women dedicated to god they were stayed by the stalwart resistance of the burghers of carlisle edward did not turn aside he was soon before berwick and took it with little difficulty though with great loss of men on both sides thence he marched on the castle of dunbar was held against him by its countess though the earl himself was in his army the scots sent a large force to protect it but edward's generals proved victorious and on april twenty seventh the castle surrendered to the king in person three of the scots earls four barons and seventy knights were among the captives thence edward proceeded and took roxburgh dunbarton and jedburgh edinburgh yielded to an eight days siege then stirling and perth and on july tenth balliol came to him at brechin and submitted admitting his disloyalty and surrendering the kingdom of scotland into his hand as a justly forfeited fief on august twenty eighth in a parliament at berwick the scots barons took anew the oath of allegiance and renounced their alliance with france edward like henry the second before him at the treaty of falaise took the castles of edinburgh roxburgh jedburgh and berwick into his own hands and he appointed the earl of warren as guardian of scotland he took no bitter vengeance balliol was kept for only three years in honourable captivity and was then allowed to retire to his estates in normandy the barons who had broken their oaths he forgave but when he returned he took with him to england 
the scots regalia and the ancient stone on which the kings were wont to be crowned and which still remains in westminster abbey set into the chair on which british sovereigns now sit at their coronation thus scotland submitted but edward's troubles were not over in twelve ninety six pope boniface the eighth had by the bill de claricis laicos forbidden ecclesiastics to pay any taxes on church property without the pope's leave edward had already done something to anger churchmen he had compelled archbishop peckham to withdraw some canons which had been issued reflecting on the royal power he had by the statute of mortmain obtained the power of stopping all grants of land to the church he had made great demands on the clergy for money extending in twelve ninety four to half their revenues and they had been reluctant to attend the national parliament which met in twelve ninety five the bull caused an open quarrel archbishop winchelsea who had succeeded peckham in twelve ninety four refused to allow any further grant and the king thereupon declared that all clergy who would not pay were outlawed you that appear for the clergy said the chief justice at westminster take notice that in future no justice is to be done them in the king's court in any matter of which they may complain but nevertheless justice shall still be done to all persons who have any complaint against them at this very time other classes were almost equally at variance with the king the barons were chafing under his inquiry into their privileges and his restrictions of their rights the merchants were protesting against the increase of the customs six shillings eight pence on every sack of wool exported had been granted in twelve seventy five it was not hard to organize a determined opposition in twelve ninety seven the king summoned the barons it seemed that his model parliament had soon broken down for the clergy were outlawed and he did not summon the commons edward demanded that his barons should serve for the recovery of gascony while he himself went to flanders to attack france from the north roger bygot earl of norfolk and earl marshall and humphrey de boone earl of hereford the constable refused to go without him their duty they said required their attendance on the king but they had no other obligation by god said edward you shall go or hang by the same oath answered the marshal i will neither go nor hang it seemed as if a new baron's war would break out edward summoned a feudal levy at westminster july twelve ninety seven and there a peace seemed to be made the pope allowed the clergy to make voluntary gifts king and clergy were reconciled edward confirmed the great charter and the charter of the forests the king then went to flanders and his son edward was left to arrange for the reissue of magna carta the confirmation of the charters is an important document besides renewing the great charter and the charter of the forest and requiring that they should be read in all cathedral churches twice a year it declared that the king would take no more such aids tasks and prizes as he had taken without the common consent of the realm and it undertook that the maltote or heavy custom on wool should never again be levied without consent edward accepted and confirmed the act and again in twelve ninety nine he renewed his oath to it in thirteen hundred the articuli super cartas limited the power of royal officials 
and ordered a forest survey. In 1301 the charters were again renewed and reform undertaken. Thus, though the king had still some means of taking money apart from council or parliament, he stood honestly by his word and kept within his rights. But the archbishop and the barons still suspected him, and his last years were troubled by their distrust and opposition. These last years were again years of strife with Scotland. Wales had again been gradually reduced to submission, and young Edward had been made its prince. But the Scots had not remained at peace after the conquest of 1296. The Earl Warren, Edward's minister, had been attacked by an outlaw of Galloway, William Wallace, or the Welshman, and was utterly defeated at Stirling, September 10, 1297. Wallace became for a time the ruler of Scotland. The Battle of Stirling had placed the land at his mercy, and he was a stern conqueror. Contemporary writers record terrible instances of his barbarity, and when he invaded England he spared neither age nor sex. The English border lords retaliated with similar brutalities. Edward determined to bitterly avenge the attack of the governor of Scotland, as Wallace was now called. He gathered a great army at York, and after a year's delay he was ready to proceed, having now made peace with France. He pursued Wallace to the forest of Falkirk. There he won a great victory on July 22, 1298, and utterly crushed the power of Wallace. The governor yielded up his office and fled. The Scots, however, would not now submit as readily as before. They declared that they held the kingdom for John Balliol, whom Edward had imprisoned, and they named three regents to rule the land for him. War went on without any decisive action till Pope Boniface VIII interfered and declared that he was Lord of Scotland. But the English Parliament at Lincoln in 1301 declared that the claim was unjustifiable and asserted Edward's right to rule. Year after year Edward fought with varying success, till in 1303 he overran the whole land, received the submission of the regents, the Bishop of St. Andrews, John Comyn, and Robert Bruce, and after the capture of Stirling in 1304, drew up a plan for the ruling of Scotland, by which English judges were to be joined to the Scots, and the Scots Parliament was to send representatives every year to the English Parliament. Thus Scotland had a second time submitted to the English king, no leader still held out, and even Wallace in his exile was willing to yield on terms. The king, it appears, was ready to receive his surrender, but Wallace soon changed his mind, for he returned from France to Scotland and remained in hiding. He was captured and executed in London for the robberies, murders, and felonies of which he had been guilty, for the king, in his narrow legal view of Wallace's actions, refused to see in him anything more than a chief of marauders. Edward thought that Scotland was now at peace, but it was to remain so only for a short time. In the winter of 1305, Robert Bruce, grandson of him who had claimed the crown in 1291, murdered the regent, John Comyn, who stood loyal to his oath to Edward, in the church of Dumfries. He mustered his retainers and got himself crowned at Scone, and raised a revolt against the English king. Edward again marched northwards with his nephew, Aymer de Valence, Earl of Pembroke, as his lieutenant. Wherever he came he conquered, 
but Bruce fled from him into the wild north and could not be caught. At last Edward determined to put forth his whole strength and gathered a great army that he might utterly crush the country. As he marched, he fell sick. He stayed several months at Carlisle, and when he went forward again, he died on July 7, 1307, at Burgh-on-Sands. In his last years and in his Scots wars he had been harsh and cruel, but he did all in firm confidence in the justice of his cause. When he made his solemn vow at the knighting of Prince Edward in 1306 to avenge the murder of Comyn and punish the broken faith of the Scots, he looked on them not as a noble nation fighting for liberty, but as a perjured and rebellious company of outlaws whom it would be a shame to him as a king and as a knight not to punish. He was a great warrior, a great lawgiver, a great worker, and he died still working. Under his hand the Constitution of England had changed more than it changed for two centuries after. He had thrown his whole heart into what he did for his people, and he left marks which could never be effaced. Even in his mistakes we cannot forget that he was good as well as great, and his severity does not conceal his true love for his people. End of chapter 6